Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. In this episode, I sit down with Judy Twigg, professor of political science at Virginia Commonwealth University and a senior associate with the CSIS Russian Eurasia program. We are going to discuss the coronavirus outbreak in Russia uh, and how well uh, the Russian government and public health system is coping with this unprecedented challenge. Since I'm sure this is a topic that's on all of your minds uh, as you're stuck at home uh, self-isolating, hopefully you'll be interested and, and learn a lot from the conversation. Let's get started. Russian Roulette. I am joined today not in the studio, but virtually by Judy Twigg, who is a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University and an affiliate with our program where she works on health issues. Judy, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks very much, Jeff. Good to be with you. So, of course, we are going to be talking about coronavirus. We've heard the stories about how the virus is spreading around the world. One country that uh, doesn't pop up in the headlines a lot is Russia. The numbers that are reported seem to be pretty low. Uh, can you walk us through and maybe give us a sense of, of what the trajectory of the epidemic in Russia looks like? Sure. So the trajectory currently is on its way up. My suspicion is that Russia is fairly early in what will emerge as its COVID-19 epidemic. Uh, they've gone over a thousand reported cases. And I think there are a handful of reasons to suspect that that number is lower than the actual number of existing cases. One is that their testing regime was pretty flimsy to start out with, even though they've done a lot of tests, hundreds of thousands of tests, they say. The initial round of testing was a complicated three-layer system where I think we have a lot of reason to suspect that there was a pretty good handful of false negatives coming out of, out of that testing regime. Over the last week or so, that's tightened up. They've allowed a handful of pretty competent private labs to get involved in the testing business. And I suspect that what we're seeing now is a combination of things as the numbers start to accelerate which I fully expect will continue over the next couple of weeks. One is that testing is catching up with the number of, of actual cases. The other is that we're starting to see more evidence of community spread. In other words, the cases that we're starting to see now aren't just people who have come back to Russia having acquired the coronavirus abroad, but about 20% of new reported cases now are from we think, uh, spread you know, personal contact inside the Russian Federation, and, and that's a pretty good signal that, uh, that you've got an epidemic that's growing. So the, the under-testing or the under-reporting of cases is more a result of logistical and, and technical problems with the testing rather than politically motivated attempts to keep the numbers low. I wouldn't be shocked if there were a little bit of that deliberate under-reporting under going on as well, although I'm not convinced that that's some grand cover-up being en engineered you know, inside the Kremlin. More likely, I suspect it's a byproduct of vertical system in which people at the lower levels know that there are all kinds of incentives to report good news up the chain. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people at the lower levels, at the facility levels, the local health administration levels have been reluctant to uh, to be forthcoming about what they're seeing in the hospitals and, and with calls into, uh, into health professionals. You know, it's kind of curious that we've had some increased levels of pneumonia reported over the last few weeks, 20 or 30 percent higher than 
year-on-year compared to last year. That That's a pretty clear signal that there's a handful of COVID-19 respiratory infection that's being reported as some other kind of respiratory infection. So a similar dynamic to what we saw in China, where you know people didn't want to to report up the chain with bad news, and as a result, the, the outbreak was allowed to fester longer than it would have been otherwise. Yes. Absolutely. And much of the conversation that we'll have about Russia and particularly about perhaps some mistakes that Russia's making, some shortcomings in their testing regime, uh, some slowness in their acceleration of their response, these things are definitely not unique to Russia. Uh, they're, they're observations we can make about China, about the United States, about yeah. lots of other places. Yeah. Has there been a, a particular regional focus or foci where uh, the outbreak in Russia has has been worse, or is it, as far as we know, distributed around the country? There are cases reported in about 50 regions or oblasts around the country. Uh, definitely the hotspot right now is Moscow in terms of reported mm-hmm. cases, and, and I think that that's for two reasons. One is that you have had more travelers returning to Moscow and, and from, from international hotspots, and so there genuinely are more cases in Moscow. And also that Mayor Sergei Sobyanin in, in Russia has been on this. I mean, he's yeah. been one of the early actors. Um, he, he is Russia's Andrew Cuomo, if you will. You know, uh-huh. he, he's been one of the really uh, vocal, uh, uh, effective government officials. Um, and so I think that, that the testing regime has been more, more aggressive and more sophisticated in Moscow. We're also hearing a lot of stories out of St. Petersburg, uh, not necessarily from reported cases so much as we're hearing the anecdotal evidence from social media, from healthcare workers about the uh, overwhelming of their uh, emergency rooms and intensive care units. So it's pretty clear that there's something serious going on in St. Petersburg as well. Yeah, and that actually leads me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is how prepared the, the public health system in Russia is. How well are the places that have already been hit coping from a public health perspective, and how well positioned are other places for um, the potential uh, spread of, of the outbreak? There's a long answer to that question. So Russia has a handful of advantages in in dealing with this. In terms of sheer quantity of resources to deal with the problem, they're you know, two or threefold better off than the United States, a lot of Western European countries, China. Um, they have a higher per capita number of physicians, a higher per capita number of hospitals, hospital beds. This is all inherited from the Soviet legacy where they approached problems just by making more stuff. And so a lot of that stuff is still there. Um, well, and so, when you have even a, a fairly moderate uh, illness or injury in Russia, the inclination is always to go or be sent to the hospital. Absolutely, yes, which is horrible from a resource allocation and system efficiency perspective. But maybe it's not such a bad thing if you need surge capacity in a crisis like they do mm-hmm. right now. So so that's working in their in their favor. And they've invested a lot in the healthcare system in the last 10 to 12 years. So it's a very different conversation right now about system capacity uh, today than it would have been 10 or 12 years ago. Literally billions of dollars spent since uh, Medvedev started on the National Priority Health Project way back in 2006, 2007, Mm -hmm. and then continuing through a variety of different 
federal level and, and regional level investment initiatives up uh, up through today. So they've spent a lot of money making healthcare better than it was mm-hmm. a decade ago. And, and that's great news. They've spent that money in ways that have made sense for Russia. So a huge amount of money on neonatal resuscitation and maternal and child health, all to deal with their demographic challenges with low birth rates. Mm-hmm. Um, a huge amount of money building about a dozen brand new sparkling cardiovascular disease treatment centers, cancer treatment centers, all of which makes a whole lot of sense given Russia's challenges over the last 20 years with premature uh, working age male mortality, uh, cardiovascular disease, non-communicable disease in general. So all that's great news. I wonder how much all of that investment is fungible into a crisis with respiratory illness. I hope a lot of that capacity translates effectively, but a lot of that equipment, a lot of those specialized personnel, a lot of those facilities might not be just what you need uh, for a surge in capacity to deal with uh, COVID-19. Yeah. You spoke about uh, Sabyanin and his willingness to sort of lead and, and be out front in terms of coordinating a response in Moscow. What other kinds of measures have been put in place in terms of isolation, quarantining, contact tracing, all of the other kind of public health measures um, in Moscow and elsewhere? Russia was very early, as the United States was very early, in closing borders. Mm-hmm. Um, so in particular, they locked down that, what is it, 4,300-kilometer land border with China. That was important for obvious reasons, although the given Chinese, the amount of... And the Chinese were not very happy about it. No, not at all. And I'm continuing to keep an eye on the case numbers that are reported out of the Far East because there was so much shuttle trading and and just people moving back and forth across that border that it's not entirely clear to me that shutting down that border by decree would have been immediately effective. And, and I worry about cases that aren't being reported in the, in the Russian Far East. But, but they did shut down that border. They shut down a lot of air travel. They did a good job as far as those kinds of measures were concerned. Sibyanin has been more aggressive in Moscow than the rest of the country has been with the kinds of physical distancing measures that were, you know, have ramped up, obviously, here in the United States over the, over the last couple of weeks. Russia as a whole didn't really start to acknowledge a sense of crisis about this epidemic until Putin gave his his nationwide address on Wednesday, the 25th of March, in which he announced a set of measures related to physical distancing, to a week-long work stoppage, a work holiday, basically, that starts on Saturday, the uh, the 28th of March. And then uh, along with worries about that, that people would respond to that week-long work holiday by basically going on vacation or gathering in parks, you know, going uh, about a lot of activities that would go against the the physical distancing measures. They then announced further measures to close a lot of the parks, close a lot of the gathering places, and, and really emphasize the message that people shouldn't treat this as you know, an excuse to, you know, go to the banya, get together with friends, make a holiday out of this, that people really should stay home and, and practice important uh, physical distancing measures. That has only very recently been a set of messages that's been conveyed to Russian public in, in a serious way. So, you know, mm-hmm. there are reports that lots of people have left Moscow. Um, as a result of these announcements. So we worry about the virus being carried outside. And the same thing has happened in New York. Reports that about a million people have left New York City in the last week or so. You know, that That's horrific in terms of the potential for, for spread, of the, uh, spread of the epidemic. So mm-hmm. at this point in time, 
they appear to be putting the right set of measures in place, but it's been late, and it's been yeah. later than a lot of other counterparts in the region, much later mm-hmm. than Ukraine, for example, later than Georgia, uh, later than a handful of the other countries that appear to have clamped down much, much more expeditiously. Yeah. One of the, you know, since we mentioned people leaving um, Moscow, you know, one of the important features of, of the Russian economy and, and the labor market is the role that migration plays, um, and particularly from um, uh, other post-Soviet countries in, in the Caucasus and Central Asia. So what do these restrictions, what do these measures mean for that migrant population? One of the most worrisome images I've seen in the last week is images of large groups of migrants waiting at airports in Moscow mm-hmm. and other cities to, to uh-huh. get home, to get back to Central Asia. That's incredibly worrisome because, of course, many of these people live in or have lived in crowded, cramped living quarters uh, near their construction or other workplaces in, in Moscow, St. Petersburg, other cities. And so there's a concern that they're already infected and are now taking those infections back home with them. Another type of concern here for the people, for the migrants who are still inside Russia is the extent to which they're going to have access to health care. Uh-huh. So on the one hand, one of the advantages Russia has that we don't necessarily have here in the United States is that if you have a nationwide compulsory medical insurance card or policy, which all legal residents of Russia do, your health care is covered, your testing is covered, your access to a health facility is covered, and so you don't necessarily worry about how you're going to pay for care if you get sick. That's not true of the undocumented labor migrants, and there are millions of them that live in Russia, so we worry about what will happen with their care and what will happen with their propensity to seek care and the possibility that they'll spread the virus because they don't feel as though they have access to the kinds of, uh, of care that other Russians have. Um, Jeff, if we can, I'd like to go back and talk about the capacity of the Russian healthcare system to sure. deal with what I suspect is a current onslaught of cases in emergency rooms and intensive care units in Moscow and St. Petersburg and what I fear is coming to mm-hmm. other urban areas around the country. Sure. Uh, we mentioned earlier that they have lots of doctors and lots of hospitals. Uh, they tell us that they have 40,000 ventilators available around the country. I worry, though, about the quality of the physical infrastructure and the relatively shallow bench of human resources that are are available to take care of people. If you're in Moscow, St. Petersburg, a couple of other big cities, you have access to a handful of top-notch, terrific public health care facilities that have received a lot of investment. They're newly constructed over the last decade, and your care is probably of of world-class quality in those facilities. There aren't that many of those, and there's a fairly steep drop down to facilities that are borderline dilapidated that haven't received investment. And, and even, you know, uh, Vice Prime Minister Galikova, who used to be health minister, um, the current uh, health minister, uh, ha- have talked about the lack of investment in these facilities, the poor quality of the infrastructure. Uh, there was a report that was given to the Federation Council at the end of last year that had some shocking figures for a high percentage in the 30 to 40s uh, percentage of hospital facilities around the country that don't have running water, that don't have Mm. hot water, that don't have connection to plumbing and sewage. I suspect those numbers are exaggerated because they're counting a lot of sheds and outbuildings and and, closets even in that denominator. So I think those numbers are exaggerated, but I think those numbers do 
point us toward the state of Russian inpatient facilities, not to mention the state of Russian primary care facilities, once you get too far outside of the major cities around the country. So what happens if the epidemic breaks out of the major cities and we start to have people in smaller cities, especially in rural areas that become infected that need emergency or intensive care? You know, there are problems with containment of the virus associated yes. with transporting those people to the better facilities mm-hmm. in major cities. So so what happens to those people is uh, is incredibly worrisome. I also worry about a shortage of intensive care nurses. You know, it's those nurses who are on the line 24-7 where people who suffer from moderate to severe COVID-19 disease need incredibly intensive care uh, from a human resource perspective. You know, it's not just the physical uh, ventilators and oxygenators and, and, and other equipment. It, it's the skilled human professionals. And I worry that Russia doesn't have enough of those to go around. And why is that? Is it that the, the way that medical education is structured just doesn't train enough nurses? Is it a, an allocation problem? You know, why is that um, an issue? Um, It's partly the factors you mentioned. It's also partly that medicine in general is not the kind of high-pay, high-prestige profession in Russia that it is here. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, most of the doctors are women, and that tells you a lot about how prestigious that profession is. And that's been true since the Soviet period. Um, As you go up the chain of specialty, it becomes a more male-dominated system and the the specialists become more highly paid and and they become more skilled. But by and large, unlike in Western countries where, you know, a pretty good handful of your best and brightest in colleges and universities are aspiring to go to medical school and become doctors, that's not necessarily the uh, pathways, the career pathways that the smartest young Russian Mm -hmm. men and women are taking. Now, that trickles down to the nurses as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Nurses are much less well-paid in Russia even than than they are um, in the United States and in Western countries. And um, two points I'd want to make about that. One is that in no way do I mean to um, engage in any kind of bashing of people who are currently working as Russian doctors and nurses. You know, as a whole, they are people who, not just during this crisis, but just you know, heroically over time have done amazing things in a system that has left them under-resourced and and, and under-financed. So I fully expect that healthcare workers, medical professionals in Russia will step up and and risk their own well-being and put in the hours to serve people in Russia just as they're doing all over the uh, all over the world right now but I worry that there just aren't enough of them and they don't have the kinds of skills that are needed in in the current um, situation I worry about the impact of the last decade or so's worth of creative class brain drain in Russia mm. um, where so many of the highly skilled professionals in Russia have left to the tune of probably hundreds of thousands of, of their highly skilled professionals because of dissatisfaction and disillusionment yeah. with the political system and, and with their economic opportunities. Um, I worry about the extent to which the kinds of medical professionals they need right now have been drained because of that. Yeah. One of the big concerns in the United States, in addition to shortage of, of doctors and nurses and, and things like ventilators, is just shortage of basic personal protective equipment, things that um, are relatively cheap to produce but that are imported and that tend to come at the end of a long supply chain and that have not been stockpiled for the eventuality of a crisis like the one that the country is dealing with right now. Is this also something that Russia is going to be dealing with? 
it's certainly something that we're hearing about at the facility level. We're seeing a lot of social media posts, and I'm hearing from friends uh, in the healthcare profession in Russia about the challenges that they're finding um, having the numbers of masks and the amount of personal protective equipment in general that, uh, that they would need. One, so we see that they have um, been willing to send um, plane loads and truck loads of those right. things to Italy, despite shortages at home. So we should talk about that for a minute. There are a couple of things that are going on there. One, obviously, is that Russia sending assistance to Italy plays beautifully with domestic audiences in Russia. Um, so right. it's, it's a political win for Putin to be able to send those images out over the airwaves. It also plays well in Italy. Yes, yes, absolutely. And it plays well in far right Russia allied constituencies in, in lots of places in, mm -hmm. uh, in Western Europe. It also plays well in terms of Russia's image as a global health leader, which yep. is an image that Putin has been trying to cultivate in many different ways over the last decade or so. So this is another part of that messaging that's been in Putin's playbook, really, as the United States has kind of retreated from a lot of these global health venues and a lot of global health activity. Yeah, um, well, Russia's been not only in the global health space, I mean, as a provider right, yes. of goods in general. Um, Absolutely, this is yeah. We've really seen it with this pandemic where Russia, as well as China, have really tried to step into the breach, even if the things that they're providing are not necessarily the ones that are in demand. I think the political message that it shows that, you know, they are good global public citizens at a time when the United States is pulling back is really a, it's a powerful message to, you know, even countries like Italy that are allied with the United States about, you know, where in times of crisis their friends are. Absolutely. Yeah. As, as the United States has pulled back and created those vacuums, Russia has been more than happy to, to step in and, and see what kind of new influence, what kind of new alliances they can forge as a result. But I think there's one more very important thing going on with the sending of personnel. Russian medical personnel to Italy, mm -hmm. and that's getting them trained, getting them experience in working in this crisis environment so mm -hmm. that they can then come home in another week or two or three, you know, whenever the Russian epidemic reaches its peak, mm -hmm. they'll have specialists who have been through this fire already and, and mm -hmm. have experience in dealing with it. Right. Well, and who also will have experienced working in a Western healthcare system and yes. environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. So two more points that I think are important to make about the material infrastructure that Russia's healthcare system has to deal with this. One has to do with the import substitution policies that have been in place in lots of sectors, but here we're concerned with uh, medical equipment and pharmaceuticals. You know, that this has played well for Putin in that he can say, you know, look, our policies over the last 10 years, especially since the sanctions and the counter-sanction regimes went in place in 2014, 2015, they've left us less reliant on the outside world. They've made us more self-sufficient in dealing with this crisis. Mm -hmm. And that's great, but we're already hearing over the last couple of years about the shortages of medicines for HIV AIDS patients, cancer patients, diabetes patients, because the import substitution regimes have cut off those patients from the imported medicines that they used to be taking, and the Russian-produced generics just don't do the job as well. So I worry about how that translates into the kind of antivirals and other meds that might be important as they deal with the COVID-19 crisis. We're also hearing a lot about those 40,000 ventilators that the Ministry of Health tells us exist in Russia. We're hearing a lot from the doctors who actually have those ventilators in their hospitals 
saying, yeah, but this piece of equipment is decades old. I have no confidence that it will work when we need it to work. So, again, um, we hope that that import substitution regime, you know, that those legislative and regulatory restrictions maybe get relaxed if Russia needs more equipment to come in that's 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 been produced more recently. And that doesn't even sound like that large of a number. I seem to recall saying that New York needed about that many. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. One other related point I want to make, though, um, and this very much works to Russia's benefit, is that, uh, again, making a point that that has its roots back in the Soviet system when, you know, again, this is not just in health and medical care, but across the board, you know, that central planning system left them with a relatively low level of technology, left them Mm -hmm. lacking in technological innovation. And so you had a lot of very smart people who learned how to achieve really high, really sophisticated outcomes with um, paper clips and rubber bands, um, yeah. essentially, you know, sort of the MacGyver, if you remember that old mm-hmm. TV show, yeah. you know, the MacGyver approach to technology. Right. The Soviet um, space program. Yes, exactly. Like, you know, the whole Soviet aerospace industry um, is, is exactly that, yes. And I think that their health sector has continued to benefit from that kind of skill among mm-hmm. its professionals since then. And so I'm hoping that they can approach the ventilator problem in that same way, that they can make do in really clever and creative ways with what they have and and keep people alive. Yeah. Um, It's Mm -hmm. interesting to look at some of the public opinion polling about the degree to which Russians are confident in their healthcare system and confident in the messaging that they're getting from the government and in the capacity of the healthcare system to handle the response. Uh, Levada had a poll that just came out very recently uh, where 60% of Russians don't believe the numbers on COVID-19 that the government is telling them, and almost half of them have no confidence that the Russian healthcare system is going to be able to handle a surge in severe cases of, of disease. So that, I think, speaks to some of the things that we've already talked about in terms of the, the Russian system's capacity to, to handle what may be a about to come right around the corner, um, you know, the, the Russian public who sees that system up close all the time knows that, that there are going to be some challenges. So can we talk a little bit about the economic consequences of the epidemic for Russia? In the United States, the political debate about the response has largely turned on this question of how much of an economic impact can the country afford to take and what kind of measures should be taken in order to lessen that economic impact. Do you have a sense of, one, what the outbreak on the kind of scale we're talking about means for Russia economically? And then secondly, uh, if you could give us a sense of the political debate as you're hearing it uh, about uh, how to respond to those economic consequences. Mm-hmm. So I think possibly the largest message we've had about the the level of priority that Russia gives to the economic consequences is from Putin's speech on Wednesday the 25th, where he talked almost entirely about the economic consequences and the economic and financial means that Russia would put in place to deal with it. Putin didn't talk at all about physical distancing or social distancing. He didn't talk about those kinds of things anywhere near as much as he addressed the economic consequences. This is a multiple whammy for Russia, right? They're already dealing with low oil prices, and now they have to deal with the potential consequences of, you know, both a supply and demand hit. So this will be severe for Russia in many of the same ways that it's severe 
for other advanced industrial societies around the world. And are we even at the stage of sort of talking about economic responses, you know, stimulus, bailouts, some kind of, of support for, for public welfare to, to deal with the fact that businesses are going to close and, and workers are going to be displaced and, and demand is going to fall off a cliff? There have been a couple of measures put in place, again, mostly around those remarks that uh, Putin made uh, about what the economic impact would be. So there are in the works some support measures for um, larger businesses, some support measures for senior citizens, for individuals. They're all very small scale at this point. And this is worrisome from a political standpoint. If you look at the way Putin has uh, constructed his legitimacy over the last couple of years, it's very much been around um, – you know, a, a social contract that's had to do with provision of public services, provision of social services, you know, a whole lot of attention to social programming and almost an implicit deal that you'll put up with the boundaries around democracy that go along with the, the new amendments to the Constitution and the referendum that's coming up and all, all the machinations for Putin staying in power or having the capacity to stay in power until 2036. In return, we're going to continue to deliver the goods in terms of social support and living standards, if they can't deal with this epidemic in a competent way, that whole deal falls apart. And, yeah. and fundamental aspects of Putin's legitimacy take take a pretty big hit. Yeah. Now, Judy, I, I know you've done work um, not just in Russia, but around the region, including in, in Ukraine, and, and you've written about the, the non-recognized separatist territories there. Mm -hmm. And I was curious if you had a sense about how places like that, like uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, the so-called People's Republics, and, and other sort of places that exist in the shadows politically and institutionally are going to be or are being affected by this. We have very little information coming out of the non-government controlled areas in, uh, in Ukraine right now. In Ukraine as a whole, they're, I think, on a knife edge right now. They very early on put in place uh, some of the most comprehensive containment measures that we've seen anywhere. So they, early on, far before Russia did, they, mm -hmm. they shut down a lot of travel. They shut down uh, a lot of public events. They've been very aggressive about the physical distancing measures. My guess is that at least part of the motivation for doing that is that they know their healthcare system is in no way equipped to handle a mm -hmm. surge of moderate to severe cases of COVID-19 disease. I mean, their health ministry has been a mess for decades. Um, you know, it had this surge of reform back in 2017, 2018, where things were just starting to get on the right track from a policy perspective. But the investments in primary care, the investments in hospital infrastructure were really just starting to ramp up after having been ignored you know, literally since the end of the Soviet period. I mean, Ukraine was the least reconstructed health system of all of the post-Soviet countries. And then Zelensky didn't keep on an incredibly skilled health minister that had been uh, in office from 2016 until, uh, until Zelensky came, uh, came into the presidency. And over the last couple of months, there has been a revolving door of health yeah. ministers, um, chaos in, in the Ukrainian health sector. If their containment measures haven't worked and we start to see an acceleration of cases and people needing care, um, Ukraine's going to be in really bad shape. I'd like to say one more thing about Ukraine, and that is that 
there are both civil society and private sector actors in Ukraine who have recognized that the formal public health care system is not up to the job right now. Mm-hmm. And they are quickly and I would say maybe even desperately trying to step in to fill the gaps. So mm-hmm. there are some organized uh, civil society efforts going on. Um, the wonderful NGO Patients of Ukraine that has led the been on the front lines of, of getting medicines for um, a, a lot of people in Ukraine with severe illnesses for, for years. They are organizing some coordinated efforts to get materiel in. And then there are some private companies that are actually negotiating independently for purchase of ventilators with China and with Turkey, uh, you know, just like lots of different countries are negotiating with China and Turkey, trying to get uh, imports of that that equipment. Uh, but they're trying to get that material in into Ukraine, you know, on a rough promise that they'll be reimbursed by the government at some point later on. So civil society and the private sector are really stepping up in Ukraine in a big way. And presumably, we haven't seen anything comparable in Russia. Not that I'm aware of. You know, there have been some interesting points made recently in in broader discussions about what the approach to this pandemic crisis says about the relative merits of authoritarianism versus democracy around the world. And I think the most persuasive point that I've heard a couple of people make there is that you have some authoritarian states that are doing very well and some that are doing very badly in dealing with the crisis. And the same thing is true of democracies that the gold standard here seems to be competence. <laughs> yes. And 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 that can that can come from both democracies and from authoritarian systems. Mm-hmm. And and I, I fear that we're about to see at best um patchwork levels of competence in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um you know, Sobyanin, you know, has governed Moscow brilliantly from a confidence standpoint um and and appears to be rising to the occasion in the way he's dealing with with COVID-19 but we uh we don't necessarily have that with a bunch of Putin cronies in position in a lot of other places around the country. Yeah. Well, this is, a, I think, a much bigger question that goes beyond Russia, how this epidemic plays out in different countries and, and how effective those responses are, is, I think, going to have very serious implications for questions of political legitimacy, regardless of whether we're talking about democratic or authoritarian or other you know, kinds of, of, of systems. Uh, and the political fallout from this is going to be something that we're going to be dealing with for a really long time. I agreed. And I think it won't be just political fallout within countries. I think mm-hmm. that this pandemic is likely to lead to some dramatic global geopolitical shifting as well. Yeah. Um, and where Russia comes out in that will be um, one of the big stories that we're going to be following here. All right. Judy, okay. thanks for joining us. Sure. Thank you very much, Jeff. Good to talk with you. Okay, that is it for our show today. Thank you for joining. You can find the link to Judy's bio in the show notes. Judy is a repeat guest on Russian Roulette. She joined us last year where we discussed uh, her report, Putin and Global Health, Friend or Foe. You can check that out. Uh, There's a link to the report in the show notes, and you can also check out uh, her earlier episode of Russian Roulette. You can follow Judy on Twitter at jtwig9, that's at J-T-W-I-G-G-9, and if you haven't done so already, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can leave us a rating and a review as well. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out and subscribe on Google Play or SoundCloud. 
can also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, and you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. Of course, as always, big thank you to everybody who uh, works so hard to make the podcast happen. That includes especially our uh, research associate program manager and producer, Roxana Debedulina, and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks again. Stay safe, and hopefully uh, we'll be back with you here soon. Mm-hmm.